All right, so uh, this is week two of um, asking for a friend. And we started this last week. If you were here last week, I've already said this, but I want to make sure that you hear me say this again because um, sometimes Christians can come across very egotistical, right? We didn't start this series asking for a friend because we think we have all the answers. Okay, you need to hear me say that again. We didn't start this series because we think we have all the answers. What we did, we started this series because people ask questions. And I will say this with full confidence. I believe that as believers, we have the answer. His name is Jesus. But we also believe this. I told you this at the end of the service last week. We want at the end of the series for asking for a friend to become asking with a friend. Right? That we're in relationship and we're asking these questions and we're, and we're walking with Jesus and one another in community to the answer. Right? Because I don't know if you know people that are like... Um, just Jesus people, that's what I call them, like, just Jesus. I mean, just pray harder, just sing louder, just, you know, like, and, and I'm not discounting the power of Jesus, but Jesus calls us into relationship with him and with others, and we walk together to the answer, okay? And anyway, uh, last week, uh, you, you heard Larry, God, what a great message. Holy cow, were you, were you here last week? Were you here for that? Oh, my goodness. He was talking about how he felt pressure preaching in front of me, and I feel pressure preaching after him. I mean, that was amazing. What a strong, strong word. Um, but what I hope you saw last week was sometimes the answers that we give you to the questions that were asked might be a little bit surprising. Like y'all came last week, well, came last week like, okay, we're going to talk about, think about the, the question, is freedom from addiction really possible? So we all walk in going, oh, this is going to be about drugs and sex and like, you know, rock and roll, whatever, Right. I don't know if that's a bad addiction. But what we found was there was a, he tackled another question. And the question was, why do we get addicted? And the answer was because we don't have a relationship with Jesus that fulfills us. And because we don't have that relationship that fulfills us, we pursue that fulfillment in other places. And that opens the door to addiction. I mean, did you see that last week? So we kind of came in going, okay, how can we get people off drugs? And we walked out going, holy cow, my relationship with Jesus is everything. And this morning's no different. What you're going to find is we ask a question, but then sometimes there's a question behind the question that's a greater question, right? So here this morning, you know, uh, when, we, when we first sub- submitted, like, these forms and said, hey, you can go online, fill out these forms, you can fill a, f- a, f- a slip of paper out, drop it in the offering boxes, and ask a question. When we first started letting you guys submit questions, this one that we're talking about this morning is one of the first ones that ever came in, handwritten note, and it just simply said, do people who commit suicide go to heaven? So what we're going to find this morning is, that's the question, right? But there's going to be a question or a few questions behind the question. So let's just do this. Let's tackle the question, okay? This is what was asked. Do people who commit suicide go to heaven? And I'm going to tell you, this is going to be the shortest answer you're ever going to hear. The answer is absolutely if they love Jesus. Now, I'm going to give you some scripture to back it up, okay? Write these down. Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. I'm going to read this to you. It says this, Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Now, again, Paul's not writing to the general public. Paul's writing to believers in Rome, okay? So if you're here, that's why I said the answer is yes, if they love Jesus. If you're here and you have made Jesus Christ the Lord and Savior of your life, not if you're here and you just do church, but if he is the Lord and the Savior of your life, 
His, the relationship you have with him is more important than any relationship on this planet than Paul's writing to you. And here's what he says. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? Does, does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or if we're persecuted or hungry or destitute or in danger or threatened with death? As the scriptures say, for your sake we are killed every day. We are being slaughtered like sheep. No, despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. And at this point, you're kind of going, what? That didn't sound like victory at all. He continues. And I am convinced that nothing, somebody say nothing. Nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither our fears for today, nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below, indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing. Now, I can hear some of you thinking, and I, I was going to be transparent. This is, what I was kinda, this is how I was kind of raised. Yeah, but if you, if you kill yourself, you, you just committed murder, and you just died in your sin. And that means you have to go straight to the boogeyman. Hmm. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. Let me say this clearly. If we didn't earn salvation because of good works, we don't lose it because of bad ones. Because it's not on us. Either Jesus bore all the punishment on the cross or he bore none. And so if you're here and you're in Christ, the answer is yes. But I don't know about you. I think there's greater questions behind that question. Can I throw some of them out and then we'll address them? Here's one I thought of. So, if people that commit suicide go to heaven, then the greater question is, why would someone who loves and is loved by Jesus commit suicide? Why, why would somebody who knows the love that we just read about decide, ah, I'm done? The answer to that is one really long word, hopelessness. And so here's another question. See how every question leads to a question? It's crazy. How could somebody end up hopeless? Especially somebody who knows Jesus. What I'd like to do today is this. Um, a lot of us in this room have been affected by suicide. My family as well. But can I just say this without without minimizing that pain because I know that some of us are here and we're like holy cow like I thought about that question why would somebody ask that question and and there's there's only two answers one they're thinking about it or two someone they love did it and they'd like to know where's that person right so without minimizing all that pain can we just say that suicide is way on this side of the spectrum Okay, like last week, remember we talked about addiction and like active addiction is way on this side. But at the other end of the spectrum, 
We talked about this last week. I mean, Larry did such a good job of convicting all of us. That end is where we want to go, oh, bad people are over there, but I'm good over here. But at this end, we're addicted to Facebook, right? So if we take today's topic and we say suicide is at this end of the spectrum, then over here, this is where a lot of us live. And what we find over here are things like anxiety, fear, depression, panic. And what we're going to find out is how does somebody get hopeless? They, they live with hope killers at this end of the spectrum that eventually, if not checked, lead them over here. So I, I'm not saying people that in, in this morning that are here aren't struggling with the emotion of somebody having taken their life that you love. Or you're struggling with, like, sometimes I think about taking my life. I'd rather today deal with this, because this is where all of us live. Every last one of us live in this place. We all live with these hope, I'm going to call them hope killers. And, and what, I, what I, let's just talk about anxiety and fear for just a second. Some, some hope killers. Let me give you some definitions. So fear is an immediate response to a real threat, okay? Now, I didn't make that up. I got that from neuroscience. Like, I've studied to prepare for today, and neuroscientists will say that fear is an immediate response to a real threat. Do you know what anxiety is? Anxiety is like this low-key, sustained response to a perceived threat. I, I read it, and I was like, that sounds really scholarly, but I don't know what it means. And so they gave an example, love examples. And here's what they said. If you were to go hiking, we have some people that like to go hiking. If you were to go hiking in the woods today after church, you could have anxiety before you hike about the possibility of seeing a snake. I don't like snakes. Anybody with me? I don't like them. Like I believe, um, I, I know people here in the south, like rednecks and stuff, like they'll say, like, don't kill a black snake. If it's a snake, it's dead. I mean, if you want to keep it, come get it from my property, right? Because if it's on my property, it's going to go back to hell where it came from, okay? That's the way it's going to work. I don't like snakes. This is not going to happen. So I don't care. I don't take the time to be like, are you a good snake? I'm just like shovel head gone, right? Done. So if I was going to go hiking in the woods, I could begin to experience anxiety before I ever get there. It's like this low-key, sustained anxiety response to the possibility that there are snakes in the woods. But I'm going to tell you right now, as we're walking down the path, if some demon on its belly started slithering straight towards me, I'm not experiencing anxiety. I'm wet my pants, full-blown fear, right? Like, I, and it's not just snakes. We can talk about mice. I mean, there's a long list of things that can cause me to have a, a real fearful reaction. That's the difference between anxiety and fear. Now, a lot of us live with anxiety all the time. Because we're afraid of what has not even happened yet. Now, the brain. So neuroscientists, they take the brain and they divide it into two types of brains. You, you have two brains in your head. You knew you were smart, right? You got two brains in your head. You have um, the cognitive brain and, like, that's the frontal lobe right here where we all make our decisions. Which, by the way, parents, if you got parents of teenagers... 
um, just giving you some words of encouragement, right? You know how sometimes our teens, they just make dumb, dumb decisions? It's because this part of your brain, <laughs> I think that resonated with somebody. <laughs> um, it's because the frontal part of your brain, do you know when it fully develops? It's going to blow your mind at the age of 27. Which means that's why, and you all did it. Think back to your teenage years. You made the dumbest decisions because you haven't fully got a developed brain that allows you to weigh the options, pros and cons, and then make a decision. You're still being ruled by your emotional brain, which is in the back. And so you just, I'm going to do it. And you just do it, right? And so as, as parents, we're hopefully beyond the age of 27. And so we're like, are, are you kidding me? What are you thinking? And they're like, they're not. That's the point. Like, it's, and it's not making teenagers feel bad. It's just like, or even in your 20s, hello, people, like 27 years old, you're finally fully developed and can process and think through the ramifications of what you're doing. Somebody say community. If you're like under 27, you need people in your life that are going, hold up, buddy. That might not be the wisest thing, right? You need that. So this is how your brain functions. And, 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 the, and neuroscientists that do studies, here's what they'll find. People that are, um, people whose brains are functioning the way they're created to function. When they feel an emotion rise up, they're able to rationally talk themselves out of that fear. Like, there's not a lot of snakes in those woods. The chances of me seeing a snake are like, Less than 1%. I mean, you start kind of, you can rationalize yourself out of these fears. But when your brain doesn't function the way God intended, they've actually learned that your brain has what they call a fear network. It's crazy. And it just starts like sending fear all through your brain. And that begins to override even your rational thought. Let me give you a quick example. You can laugh at me because it'll be good for you, right? So I have a little bit of a, a fear of heights. But as I studied this, what I learned is I don't really have a fear of heights because I've never fallen. I have an anxiety about possibly falling from, high, from like a high height, a high, a high height, a high place. What would you, I'm experiencing an anxiety right now. Um, so um, my good friend Richard Kimmer and I, we went to Inner Peaks one day, and we were climbing and we were both climbing. He's a much better climber than I am. And, um, Richard, are you in here? Okay, so how, the, the tall one that we did, is it, it's like 1,000 feet high? Oh, 50 feet high, yeah. So just, in my brain, it seemed like 1,000. So it's 50, so like, you know, here's how, here's how this works, right? Here's how your brain functions. You were created this way. It's just that mine's not quite working right. So, um, and y'all knew that. Anyway, at the base, we look up at it, and he's like, let's climb it. We'll climb it together. There's one here, and there's one here, and so we're going to climb together. So, you know, you get in this harness. You pull that harness. You check it. He checked it. He's like a professional climber. So, like, on the ground, here's what I know. I'm good. I am good. I mean, even if I start climbing, if I were to fall off, I've been watching people all day long. They just chill and bounce off that wall, and they swing back and land. Nobody's died here. Even the bottom is cushioned. It's good. It's all, all so good. I know this in my cognitive brain. And I'm pretty good 15, 20 feet up. But you can ask Richard because when we got down, he was laughing at me. I, I did. I would say I made it to the top. Did I not? I did make it to the top. But here's what I look like. 
You ready for this? Uh, so I'll, I'll just give you the side view. So this is the wall. And, like, I'm climbing normal, right? But somewhere around 25, 50 feet, I'm like. <laughs> but I don't know it. In my head, I'm like a rock star climber. But he's laughing at me. And he's like right next to me going, you can do it. You can do it. And I'm like, I am doing it. And he's like, no, you need to do it. <laughs> Reach up. You know, but because even though I knew there was no way I was going to die, this irrational, emotional part of my brain started sending signals to that fear network lit up. And, I mean, I was terrified over something that didn't even happen. Some of you are here today, and you struggle with panic attacks. Some of you are here, and you struggle with anxiety attacks. It's because that part of your brain, it just overrides everything. And, and the way God intended is for us to be able to know the truth and begin to override the fear. You know why the Bible says that perfect love casts out fear? Because when we really know, I mean know, cognitively and emotionally, we know that we're loved and we're safe, there's no room for fear. It pushes it back. Okay, so if we can't do the rational thing, like talk ourselves out of that, then what we have to have are people in our lives that can help talk us out of that, right? Or we need to see a physician, and they need to study and see, like, is there something not firing in our brains that should fire in our brains so that we can override this, right? It doesn't make us awful or bad. It just makes us a little broken. For whatever reason, when it comes to mental health, we're so hesitant to get help. I don't understand that. One of the things that we want to do today, when I talked about this a lot this week, is we want to break the stigma of that, but at the same time not sensationalize it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but our culture, like right now, anxiety and depression, it's kind of in. It's kind of cool to go, I'm kind of depressed. But like real depression, and if you're here and you fought that, that dark season of your soul, that ain't fun. And the people that say, yeah, I'm kind of depressed, they're not kind of depressed. They wouldn't say it if they were, right? So we don't want to sensationalize it. We want to just talk about it from a scriptural standpoint. Like what do we do when people are struggling with anxiety, when they're struggling with fear? What do we do when we're struggling with it? So I'm going to give you three specific things that you and I can do, and then we're going to try to wrap this, this thing up. One, pray. Um, man, prayer's gotten a bad rap lately because people think that either you pray and either you pray or you do something, right? That's kind of like, so somebody says there's a shooting, and we go, prayer's for that, and people are like, God, just stop with the prayers. Just do something. Prayer is doing something. 
Prayer is effective. Prayer does work. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 through 7 says this. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. This is the New Living Translation. If you have the NIV, and I'll tell you this, as somebody who has struggled with anxiety in his life, in the NIV, in my Bible at home, this is highlighted. Because in the NIV, it says this, be anxious for nothing. But in everything, pray. Tell God what you need. And thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which, is, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Um, anxiety, we have already said this, is based on the unknown. And so here's what prayer does when we pray about everything. Prayer invites the God who knows everything into the stuff that we don't know. And that's what brings peace, right? Um... Peace will guard your hearts and minds. From what? The battle. Listen to this statement, okay? We don't pray so we can end the battle. We pray because we're in the battle. He didn't say, if you'll pray about everything, you'll just, it'll stop. Because if it was going to stop, why would we need the peace of God to guard our hearts and minds? We pray because we're in the battle. And in the battle, he guards our hearts, and he guards our minds, and he gives us peace. So pray about everything, especially those of you that are here, and, you're, um, and we're, on, we're on, like, team anxiety, right? We, we know this struggle that's real. Man, I have learned to pray at all times. Man, and what does that mean? Like, at all times, oh, Father, thou art holy. No, it just means I'm always trying to be aware that God is with me. We'll talk about that again in a minute. So pray about everything. And then here's something you can do. Pay attention. So pray and pay. Pray about everything. Pay attention. Um, anybody ever been triggered? Shook? Right? We've all got triggers, right? Triggered is, is this it's really in word, right? Like, I'm triggered. I'm, tr- I'm triggered. I just got triggered. You know, it's like, what in the world is that? Like, are you shooting people? What's happening? Triggered is just like this, it's this really in word right now to explain what happens on the inside of you. So when, when something happens, you get triggered. If you're um, here and you're over the age of 35, you've probably never even thought of the word trigger, but you know this phrase, pushing someone's buttons, right? So triggered is your generation's pushing buttons, okay? So like, um, oh, they just pushed my buttons. And here's what happened. This is really important. In our culture today, you can get away with almost anything if you were triggered. No responsibility. Just, why did you punch that person? <laughs> I was triggered. Some of you are like, I'm going to try that, right? <laughs> I was triggered. Here's, listen to this. I'm going to read this. It's a long statement. I want to make sure you get this. Check this out. Being triggered isn't an explanation. It's an indication that we need the Spirit to launch an investigation into our situation. That was good, wasn't it? That was good. I'm going to say it again. Being triggered isn't an explanation, meaning why would you do that? Well, because I was triggered. Now, that's not what triggered is. It's not an explanation. It's an indication that we need the Spirit to launch an investigation into our situation. Psalm 42, David said this a bunch in that psalm. Why so downcast, oh, my soul? Why? He was triggered. Something happened, and it brought him down. And instead of reacting to that, he said, wait a second. 
This is an indication that I need to ask the Spirit to launch an investigation into my situation. Why so downcast, O oh my soul? Psalm 139, what do you say at the end of that, ver- that, that chapter? Search me and know me, O oh God, and see if there's any offensive way in me. Search me. Investigate me. Here's what I've learned right now in my life. It's not enough to just say what triggers us. We need to start asking why it triggered us. Why did, I, why did I respond the way that I did on the inside? Why is it that when so-and-so does this and somebody says this one phrase, it always triggers me? So instead of being trigger-happy as a culture, we're actually investigating. God, send your spirit, let him investigate my life. I learned, um, I'm trying to think how much I really want to share with you guys about me because I, I want you to still like me, right? Um, Januarys are hard for me. So I made a little life rule. It's like a lot of people get excited in January. They're like, it's a new year. But for me, it's like, God, here we go again. I can't explain it. I know it sounds really depressing, but it's just I've learned over the years that Januarys just aren't the best months for me. Maybe because we don't get enough snow. I don't know. I don't know what it is. But I had to make a rule. Never quit my job in January. Because every January, I'm just like, I'm done. Not because I don't love y'all. I've been here for like seven Januaries. I love what I do. But I've learned that something about that triggers me. And until I really understand why it triggers me, I'm not going to do anything stupid and rash. When I was in middle school, um, Now listen, my dad's heard this. When I was in middle school, I started ticking a lot. Like, you know, like facial ticks and shoulders moving and stuff like that. And just got really anxious. That's a bad thing to happen in middle school, right? And so school was hell for me. And I would come home from a day of that and sit at the dinner table, and then, like, my dad would, I mean, because he didn't know any better, like, at the time, he was just like, stop, and I was like, I can't, and then he would just start, like, mimicking what I was doing, like, I guess to show me what it looked like, but I already knew that it looked bad, and I couldn't quite figure out what was going on, and so from that point forward, like, every day, now, some of you that don't really struggle with anxiety, you're going to check out here because you don't understand it, but I got the attention of people that struggle with anxiety. Every day was a fight just to hold it together. Like, please, teacher, don't call on me. So I don't know exactly if you can be suicidal in junior high or middle school, but I do know this, and Wendy's really good. She, she, we talked about this this week. You know, people that are suicidal, most of the time they're not suicidal because they want to end their life. They're thinking about suicide because they want to end the pain of their life. And I, I can remember laying in bed. I loved nighttime because I would go to sleep. And so for, you don't think about it because you're asleep. I can remember in my, just the worst moments laying in bed and just saying to, to a God that I'm not even sure I really even loved at that point, I would love to just die because then my eye wouldn't twitch because then my shoulder wouldn't move because then my head wouldn't tilt to the side and people wouldn't call me snake at school. Like, 
then I wouldn't have to struggle with all this stuff. And it wasn't that I didn't love life. And it wasn't that I was so far depressed. I was all on this spectrum. It was just like, can we just make this stop? That is what anxiety is like. And if we don't understand how the brain is functioning, then we will find ourselves doing just what my dad did. Just stop. Just stop being so depressed. Shake out of it. And what they're saying is exactly what Larry said last week about addiction. If I could, I would. You don't say amen out loud if you're here struggling with it, but you know you would not be there if you, didn't, if you could get out. We've got to pay attention to triggers. Here's what I want you to know. Pay attention to other people as well. And then the last thing you can do is say something. And say something. Now, maybe not what I experienced, right? But say something. Usually what happens is we're like, I don't know, man. Something's, something's not right with Paul today. I don't think I'll say anything to him. It might make it worse. It'll never make it worse if you walked up to somebody and said, are you okay? You don't quite seem yourself. Say something. Pray about everything. Pay attention and say something. I love um, in Psalm 42 when David says, why so downcast, O my soul? I think he says it three or four times in that psalm. I'll have to look back and see. I know it. And then he says it again in Psalm 43. His answer to that every time, why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. So he's saying something to himself, right? I mean, we've all heard self-talk. Why so downcast, oh, my soul, put your hope in God. But he's, this is what we can say to one another. Why so downcast? Dude, you're awesome. Put your hope in God, right? Say something. Don't sit back and do nothing. Say something. Last thing I want you to hear. The reason we feel hopeless in dark seasons of the soul is because the enemy wants us to believe that that's where our story ends, but it doesn't. Can I just throw some names out of you? Just, just jot these names down. You may never have heard these before. Um, Jonah, David, Jesus. You heard of those guys? Jonah, David, and Jesus all experienced dark seasons of their soul. Jonah had his in the belly of a great fish. We think of it as a whale. It's just it's a huge fish, big enough to have a man in his belly, right? That's a big fish. So Jonah's in the belly of a whale. He's there because he's running from God. He's sinned. I don't even know what a belly of a whale smells like, but it's got to be nasty. He's there, right? If David had not just one dark season of soul, but many, you ever read the Psalms? Like, you know you're having a dark season of soul when you're writing things to God, like, just kill him, right? Just kill him, or let me kill him, or kill me, right? Psalm 22, um, David wrote Psalm 22, and this, you know, I mean, just read it sometime today. It's, it's just, you read it and go, this, guy's, this dude's depressed. It's like, my bones ache. Sleep evades me. And I was reading that this week, and I was like, man, that just sounds terrible. And you know what the Lord told me? Jonah and then David, and he said, Jesus, think about this. Psalm 22, the psalm that sounds so depressing, is the, it's a messianic psalm. It's the psalm that points to Jesus. It's a psalm that Jesus quoted from at the cross. It's the psalm that said his bones would not be broken. It's a messianic psalm. It points to Jesus. And so Jonah, David, and Jesus, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and it says that he was grieved to the point of death. And I ask myself this question, because what happens with suicide, right? 
if we, if we don't tackle all these anxiety things over here and we allow them to take us over here, at this point, here's what I'm thinking. My story is done. And I'm taking the pen out of the author's hand and I'm writing the ending of my own story. But what I want you to know is that God is not done writing your story nor mine. Now think this through. What if Jonah had taken the pen and ended in the whale? Nineveh's not saved. What if David, numbers of times, had taken the pen and ended it? Well, the Bible says that Jesus came through the line of David. No David, no Jesus. Don't go theological on me. Stay with me because you're like, no, God would have figured another way out. Probably so, but just get the point, okay? I don't need that today. What if Jesus, I know it's hard to think about this, but what if Jesus in the dark season of his soul had taken the pen from his father and said, I know you sent me to do something, but this is too much. I'm out. No cross, no resurrection. You're not here today, neither am I. No salvation. The enemy lives in dark places. Psalm 23 says that I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. That's a dark place. But you are with me. God is with us in those places. You've got to get this. And so here's what happens. We walk through these dark seasons. And I'm going to tell you right now, like this past year, huh, crazy, right? It's been, it's, anyway, we're, we're still here. That's good, right? Like my, I'm just telling you, emotionally hard. We get to these places, and what the enemy wants us to do is to convince us, just sit down and stay here. And if we'll stay there, we just stay in his influence all the time. And you know what God's saying? He's saying, no, 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 the valley's not for sitting. The valley is for walking through. Let's walk through that thing. Let's get away from the influence of an enemy who has one goal. John 10, 10, the enemy has come to throw you a party. Is that what it says? You're like, no, because I know throw you a party is not even in the Bible. You can't trick me like that, Pastor, right? The enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy. But God has come to give us life. So Jonah, David, and Jesus, they all recognize that dark seasons of the soul are just that. They're seasons. I don't know what your favorite season is. Mine is not summer, right? <clears throat> Except for the vacations. That's cool. But the heat and humidity, ugh, right? I mean, I don't want to go to hell. Why would I even want to pretend like we're in it, right? It's just terrible. I love fall. I love winter. Like, I got, we all got favorite seasons, and we got seasons we don't really like. But they're seasons, and they have a beginning, and they have an end. And I'm telling you, like, dark seasons of the soul, for me, are like August. You know, it's like, God, it's 90 degrees, and it feels like a million. It's just like, I don't want to run. I don't want to do anything. Like, just everywhere I go, I'm sweating. It's just awful. When will it end? Usually in September, although this year, maybe November, right? But it will end. It will end. Seasons end. I'm hoping that this is making sense to you. I'm not, I'm not really sure. But I'm going to end this morning. Just I want to give you... Um, kind of a word that the Lord gave me this week about hope in, in dark places, hope in hard places. Um, we need some, we'll need some music for this part. Just some accompanying, accompanying, Paul, hurry up and get done, music. This week I was in 
I've just been spending so much time with the Lord, um, just trying to just be, I want to be a, an empty vessel today, and I want to, I want just to point to Jesus. And I, and I, I recognize, because I've experienced it, and, I've, and I'm not even like where some of y'all might be right now, um, but anxiety is real, and fear is real, and depression is real, but it's not greater than Jesus. And I just, my God, just empty me this week so I can just, I want to share truth in a way that you you can communicate to people, and they can really latch on to hope, right? And so this week, while I was praying, um, do you ever have verses just pop in your head, but you don't know where they came from? I mean, you know they came from God, but you don't know where in the Bible they are. And so I had a verse pop in my head, and I just, I mean, I heard it right away, and I was like, I wish I was a better pastor or a better Christian. I wish I had the whole Bible memorized, but I don't, so Google's my best friend, right? You know, so I heard this, this verse went through my head, and the verse was, God was in this place, and we weren't aware of it. That's what went through my head, and I was like, I think that's in the, I think it's in the Bible. I'm pretty sure, so I Googled it, and it is, and so I turned to, um, it's Genesis 28, 16 is, is where I went, and so um, it, it just simply says, um, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I wasn't even aware of it. Probably not what you say when you wake up in the morning, but it's what Jacob said. And so I, I, I saw it and I was like, huh, that's kind of cool. So I went back and, and started reading the story. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to read through this quickly. Okay, we'll put it up on the screen. I'll talk fast and, and we'll get through it. Um, it says, meanwhile, Jacob left Beersheba and traveled toward Haran. At sundown, he arrived at a good place to set up camp and stop there for the night. That's important, y'all. If you're in a dark season of your soul, what I'm getting ready to tell you happened at night. It's really, really important. You know, John 3, 2, Nicodemus went to Jesus. The Bible says, after dark. I shared this at the Night of Hope. What blows me away about the Nicodemus story is we all know John 3, 16, don't we? I mean, it's like that's the go-to verse. Even, even atheists can quote it. It's the go-to verse, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but everyone should have eternal life in Christ. We all know it. got King James Version, right? I don't know the message version, but I know that. That is the most popular, most quoted verse ever. And you know what it came? It came at, at dark to a man who had questions. We have a Savior who meets us in dark places. So this is happening at night. And as he slept, it says, Oh, Jacob found a stone to rest his head against and lay down to sleep. And as he slept, he dreamed of a stairway that reached from the earth up to heaven. And he saw the angels of God going up and down the stairway. I'll let you read the next couple of verses on your own. This is where we get the song, We Are Climbing Jacob's Ladder, which is the most unscriptural song ever because there's no room for us on this because this is for angels. So anyway, whatever. I sang it too, and I think it's great. And now you're going to be singing all day, and so will I, but it's not scriptural because it's not a ladder for us. Anyway, whatever. I don't know why I said it. I'm struggling right now with anxiety too. So let's just move on. Holy cow, what is wrong with me? Um, so verse 15, what's more, this is God speaking. I am with you and I will protect you wherever you go. And one day I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have finished giving you everything I have promised you. Some of you are holding on to a promise. And you're just like, God, please, when will it happen? And then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I wasn't even aware of it. Verse 19. He named that place Bethel, which means house of God, although it was previously called Luz. Great name. Where are you from, Luz? I was from Luz, right? 
so I, I'm reading it, and I'm like, that's kind of cool. Like, you know, God met him in a dark place, and he changed it to, to Bethel, and it says that means house of God. So I immediately looked up Luz, because I was like, if Bethel means house of God, what is Luz going to mean, right? I mean, I'm like, I'm like this is going to be amazing. Luz is probably going to mean like house of depression, right? House of anxiety, fearful house. So I looked it up, and it means almond tree. Um, so I'm journaling. You know, like my journal is not for answers. My journal is for questions. So like, if you ever read my journal, you'll you'll see stuff like, "What's God mean when He says this?" So I just I wrote down. I'm reading right now. Like Bethel means house of God. Luz means almond tree. But God's presence changed the place from Luz to Bethel, from almond tree to house of God. And you, I know you can't see it, but in my journal, I have three question marks. Like, what in the world is that about? So while I'm kind of asking God, like almond tree what's that about he brought another verse to my mind and this time I knew where it was it's in Jeremiah do we have that I think we got that um, put up Jeremiah chapter 1 verses 11 and 12 and then the Lord said to me look Jeremiah what do you see and I replied I see a branch from an almond tree I love almonds y'all I don't what is this about and then here's what the Lord says that's right and it means that I am watching and I will certainly carry out all my plans now, I'm starting to make connections, right? So I'm studying. Now I'm looking at the Hebrew words because what I found, if you've got a Bible, you've got a little footnote, and it says that the Hebrew word for almond sounds like the Hebrew word for watching. And so I looked them up, and they're exactly the same, except one has an A in one place where the other one has an E. And so it's like something like shakade and shakad. Like that's how you say them. And so God's giving a little wordplay here. He's like, every time you look at an almond, I'd like for you to remember that I'm watching over my word to perform it. God, this seems really good, but I don't know what it means. So we go back to Genesis chapter 28. And Jacob is in a dark place. He's been sent from his home to a place that he does not know to try to find a wife. Now, that'll cause some anxiety, dudes, in the house, right? And on the way there, he stops in this whatever place at night. He's sleeping with a rock as a pillow. That's not good. And in that place, God shows up in such a way that he changes the name from Almond Tree to Bethel because God was saying, Hey, Jacob, I know you're in a dark place, but I'm here with you. I'm always watching over my word to see that it comes true in your life. I'll be with you when you find a wife. Somebody say amen. I'll be with you when you come back. And you know in the Old Testament, that became a place where people would stop all the time. And here's what I want you to know. When Luz becomes Bethel, we become aware of the presence of God. We become aware that he's working in our circumstances and he's watching over his word. But it also means that we become people who are watching for God. One more fact about almond trees. I'm all about almonds now. Man, did you know that almond trees are the first trees to wake up from the sleep of winter? Winter would be a dark place a barren place and it's the first place where almond trees are the first ones to wake up and what God's saying is man I'm with you and I'm going to bring you out of that barren place out of that dark place 
when, when Lutz becomes Bethel, we stop looking for a way out and we start looking for the ways that God is coming in. That's, that's what I want to leave you with today. That's the big idea that I want you to take home. Stop looking for a way out and start looking for all of the ways that God is coming into where you are. And I'm telling you, He's all in your stuff. He is all in the dark place. You think you're at Luz, but you're really in Bethel. And what I'm praying over you this morning, those of you that struggle with dark seasons of your soul, and I'm right there with you, and those of you that don't and still are so convinced that only weak people do that you'll never even see it. Those of you that are here and you're here today because you've got a family member that maybe took his or her own life and you're like, how does God help with that? Where is God in that? I'm telling you that God is waking us up from our dark season. And we need to have Bethel moments where we start to see, wait a second, God, I thought you were far from me, but you're actually right here. I'm in the valley of the shadow of, of, of death, and you're actually right here with me, taking me through. Just close your, your eyes and bow your head. We're just going to bring this to a close. I want to ask you this question. Are you here this morning? And for whatever reason, you know, for me in my life, it was middle school and, and just, a, I mean, a super mild case of Tourette's probably compared to some. But it just caused so much anxiety. You could be here depressed because of lots of other reasons. You, but you say, like, you know what, dark seasons of the soul, whatever they are and whatever causes them, I can relate because I'm in one right now. I want you just to raise your hand and say, that's me, and I would like you to pray for me. Thank you so much. That's courage right there. Thank you so much. Courage. Thank you. And I'm going to pray that the, that the place you're in would become Bethel. And that, and that when it does, you would be aware. You would, you would say, wait a second. I, I didn't even realize that God was with me the whole time. Surely the Lord was in this place and I was not aware of it. And he's brought you here today so you can be aware that he's with you. It's the power of Jesus. It's the power of Jesus. The last verse of Genesis 28 says this. Jacob says, And this memorial pillar that I have set up will become a place for worshiping God. And I will present to God a tenth of everything he gives me. You know what the Lord told me about that? He said, when we have Bethel moments and we see that God is with us, even in the darkest places, our hearts are stirred to worship and to give. Do you know what two things will help us walk out of a dark place? Worship and giving. I don't just mean giving money. I mean, he's talking about money, but I'm talking about giving everything. I'm going to serve, and my eyes are going to be on Jesus, and my eyes are going to be on others, and the last place they're going to be is on me. Man, in that place, God does amazing things. Would you stand together with me? And we're going to pray, and then I'm just going to, can we just sing a chorus or something? Um, we just do some, some worship here at the end. I'm always careful inviting people to come to the front when we've talked about anxiety because I know that that can cause anxiety when you're not. Hey, if you're struggling with anxiety, stand out in front of everybody. And I, I get that, you know. But I'm going to tell you something. There's nothing more powerful, and I've learned this in my life. I mean, how many of you are in my community group? 
So like this past Friday night was our first community group. Dude, I had a, I had a full blown panic attack in community group. In community group, I, I think like the air was probably set to like 58, and I was sweating, and I was like, God, I'm gonna run out of this place, and I didn't. I didn't. I mean, it happens, but God's bigger than that. And the, the enemy will tell you to run from community, and God says, run to it. Run to it and let people, man, let them love you where you are. The enemy wants to shame us into thinking that no one will understand. But the funny thing is, the most important person who should understand does. You know why? Because Jesus has experienced everything we've experienced so that he can completely save us. Why did Jesus experience anxiety? So that he could save all of us who were struggling with it. He knows what we feel. He's not running from it. And so if you, as we sing, if you want somebody to pray with you, man, you could, we'll pray at the front, or you could just turn to somebody and say, hey, pray for me, right? But can we just end this having a, just a Bethel moment, inviting God into this place? Let's just sing this chorus, and I'll close this out.